On today's episode, I talk to Dr. Anna Maya about culturally relevant leadership learning, writing a dissertation during a pandemic, and I get her advice on joining and succeeding a doctoral degree program. Let's start the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the NASPA Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, V. Chanu, and I'm joined today by one of my lovely and talented co-hosts, Dr. Anna Maya. How are you, Anna? I'm great, V. How are you doing? I'm doing well, trying to stay warm. It's 17 degrees here today, so, you know, <laughs> trying to stay bundled up. How is it? How is it in Florida? It's um, it's pretty nice, actually. I'm in Tampa, and we had the Gasparilla Pirate Festival this past weekend, so it was very crazy down here in Tampa. Really, really fun. We had a pirate invasion on the bay, so... I think most of us are recovering from that right now. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say, you probably have a lot of people calling out sick today, which is yeah. <laughs> totally understandable. Speaking of today, today's episode is very special because we are going to be talking all things related to Anna's recently defended doctoral dissertation. So congratulations. <laughs> and of course, my first question is, how does it feel to be on the other side? Gosh, it's it's crazy to be on this side. I think surreal wonderful and weird all at the same time Mm -hmm. for me graduation really helped having that closure of attending the ceremony and you know wearing the regalia and everything Mm -hmm. because even after my defense I didn't necessarily feel like it was done Mm -hmm. so it felt a little lingering and now that I'm on the other side it's been weird I I don't really know what to do with this free time and Sure. I think maybe a little bit of it has to do with my Latinx identity or my immigrant identity mm-hmm. or just being a determined human. I feel this need to fill that space right now. So I'm really trying hard to kind of sit with it, mm-hmm. maybe paint. So exploring different ways of, yeah, fulfilling this this area that my therapist calls it grieving. She's like, you're basically yeah. grieving this loss, Absolutely. <laughs> which I thought was a really interesting observation, right? Even though I was so excited to be done. And so I expected kind of this liberation to happen <laughs> after, and it's it's been a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. I remember both after I finished my master's degree and the my dissertation defense, I went outside and it was like the grass was greener, the air was crisper, like <laughs> colors were br- like everything was just better in the world. Not having that sort of weight, right, kind of on your shoulders to feel like you're carrying this this project with you. And I, I want to acknowledge too that you know, the the writing process becomes becomes habitual, right? Like you're doing it every day or at least thinking about it every day. I think about it a little bit like an Olympic athlete who's training for that competition. Like what do they do the day after the Olympics, right? Like there's not necessarily for us another like big mountain to climb, yet you've prepared yourself for this journey. You've developed all of this writing skill. You've developed all of this thinking skill. And then all of a sudden it's just done. And you're right. The dissertation defense isn't the end because there are still edits and other things you have to do, but no one's forcing you to. You kind of do it on your own timeline as long as you get it in by the university's deadline. It's in no way matching the intensity that you've become used to. So you've got all of this energy and it needs to go somewhere. And, you know, do you pour it into your working life? Do you pour it into your family life? Do you pour it into your significant relationship? Do you pick up a new hobby? It's like, I, I, you never know how hard you can work until you're forced to. And then all of a sudden you don't have an end goal to work toward. Exactly. And, and even just like filling it with TV has been like too much. I realized I'm like, Oh no, I need to go outside or, yeah. This is not this is not the right venue for me. I like I like watching, you know, some streaming services here and there, but sure. 
yeah, just I'm still figuring what that means and how how to work through it. Yeah, you'd almost rather make a TV show than, than watch yeah, a TV show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're like having really deep analytical conversations with random people that are like not mm-hmm. into it. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> I need that because I'm craving that. Yeah, they didn't <laughs> volunteer for that conversation, but they no. happened to be there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So now that you are done and speaking about, you know, your colleagues and coworkers, have you noticed anything different about how other people interact with you? Like, have your students, your colleagues taken to treating you differently now that you have some more letters behind your name? It, no, nothing major. I've been working full time since I started the journey. Um, I will I will say my, one of my coworkers sweetly like printed out a name plate for me for my door that has doctor before it or people start introducing me as Dr. Anna Meyer, Dr. Maya. And it's really weird because I go by my first name. It's it's sweet and wonderful. And I feel so honored and excited to hear it. But part of me is also like, I'm, I'm just Anna. Like, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. okay for us to just stick here. So I'm, I'm a little bit in that in between. Yeah. Yeah. The re- the renegotiation of identity, right, is both yeah. internal and external. Like you have to figure some of that out for yourself, but then other people are also in relationship with you trying to figure out what that means for them. But we're, we're going to talk more about all that kind of stuff later on. To keep our con- the early part of our conversation going, though, I'd love if you could help our listeners who might not yet have read your dissertation study. Can you give us a kind of a general overview of what you did and, and what you found? Sure. So I was looking to explore what meaningful experiences led students to develop leader identity capacity and efficacy and leadership identity capacity and efficacy. So both of those as an individual develops and collectively how they develop leadership, identity, efficacy and capacity. I use a culturally relevant leadership learning model as a foundation and Watson Billings' work with culturally relevant teaching and really looking at at how students develop students specifically of non-dominant identities, which I can go into a little bit more detail about that, but how did they develop as leaders and in leadership? That was the overarching framework and questions that I asked in my study. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thinking process behind those questions? Lots of people read research articles or they read dissertation studies, and it seems like, you know, you just woke up and you had these questions burning, you know, in your mind. And so all you had to do was commit them to a piece of paper. But you and I know that's not at all how it works. So could you tell us maybe like where you started with, even if you didn't even start from questions and kind of the evolution of how you got from where you began to what somebody might read on on a piece of paper? Sure. I think uh, originally when I started my program, so my program is in educational psychology as we know, there are very few PhD programs out there in leadership, or you know, there are a few in leadership and change, and they can come from many different disciplines. So I specifically went to an education, an educational psychology program that mostly focused on K through 12 development. And so I was really interested in more of the college student development. So that was interesting to have that lens throughout, mm-hmm. really thinking about cognition and other elements. I took a course on resilience and love mm-hmm. that. I was really thinking about examining how students develop as resilient leaderships or engage in collective resilience as leaders. And I really, at the beginning, started kind of looking for what questions have been unanswered through the multi-institutional study of leadership. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We know that's a huge study. There's a lot of quantitative data there. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed like a great opportunity to look at the resilience scale specifically, or even the social generativity scale was one that hasn't been studied as much. So As I started reading articles and 
seeing gaps here and there, I was really initially driven to explore this further. But then as I started really reflecting on my full-time work, working with college students here, there seemed to be some magic happening in the program that I was, that I've been running for the past Mm -hmm. five years, Mm -hmm. where students, there there really has been a, a wonderful culture of leadership development that has happened from the students in my program. So they're both in a leadership studies minor and they travel in my program as a cohort taking the classes in the leadership studies minor and in co-curricular workshops. So it's a perfect co-curricular curricular foundation. We also have an overnight retreat right before the year starts. So I I started really thinking maybe I should explore that further, the magic that's happening there. Mm-hmm. And being really immersed in the literature for culturally relevant leadership learning and reading like the national priorities of the leadership agenda, like mm-hmm. one of the, the pieces you wrote to V, just thinking about what is next, what is important, what have we really not taken a deep dive into. And so what I was starting to find, especially doing a really large literature review, mm-hmm. was that a lot of the the publications on the culturally relevant leadership learning model were based on researchers' experiences or practitioners' experiences and a literature review posing really interesting questions, but not a lot of empirical studies specifically addressing the model. So that's where my question started coming in is, I would love to actually study students that have gone through a program that's focused on this. And so it happened to be that my program fit in really well, which we can talk about that too, Mm -hmm. because my positionality as a program advisor and, and director poses some challenges too. But I think it really also allowed me to dive deep into conversations with participants Mm -hmm. and peel those layers and uncover how their leadership journey has been in college thus far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think your story, you know, you're, you're telling us the story about the experiences that you've had and the academic formal training and background that you were achieving as part of, you know, your enrollment in the doctoral program as resulting in the questions that you, that ultimately formed the foundation of your study. And I think that happens for a lot of people, right? Especially for those of us that have work experience either before going into a PhD program while in a PhD program or both. That what we see in our day-to-day working lives, we have questions about it, right? Just because we do this job, and and in many cases, especially in your case, we do it well, it doesn't mean we always understand at a deep level that magic that you are describing. And even when we do understand it, it doesn't mean that we have great tools to communicate it to other people, right? Like how do we then share the good work that we're doing with others, not necessarily so that they can replicate it, but so that we can all learn together, right? We can learn from other people by describing what we do, and they can learn from us by describing what they do in similar terms. So it seems like the early parts of your maybe thinking and writing really were about connecting your own internal sense-making to the data and information that was being fed to you by your program and asking yourself the question of, okay, how how do the, how does this connect, right? Like, how can I use these tools to make sense of of what I see students experiencing? Would you, would you say that's an, a fair characterization? Yeah, I would say so. And also for me, even beyond my program, was really attending conferences and going to sessions where I felt incredibly inspired and I was asking more why questions. Mm-hmm. I would leave those sessions. So the culturally relevant leadership learning sessions that I had attended were, there was a spark for me, yeah. but there was also a little bit of that imposter phenomenon happening of like, who am I to write this or research this? There's already 
so many scholars that are attending to this topic that are wonderful and that I'm I'm inspired by and I admire. But who am I to be someone to really add to this? So that there was kind of that also that questioning and internal reconciliation mm-hmm. that had to happen in, mm-hmm. in my own efficacy and believing in myself and being able to do this work. And yeah. so I, I feel very grateful that the people that are in this field, like you, like Kathy Guthrie, right, like have been very open and receptive to someone new coming in and providing additional knowledge in this field. But that has been really great too, and in, in digging deeper into these questions and finding your voice mm-hmm. with something that is really, really drives you to study and explore further. I, I want to pick up on something you just said to you about the welcome, the welcoming environment for somebody new. We were all new ones. Right, mm-hmm. like the one experience that junior scholars and senior scholars and emerging scholars and scholars yet to be have is that we were all new at some point. None of us were born into these knowledge sets, these experience bases, these social and you know cultural capital networks that we know how to use effectively. We we were all new at one point, and I think that it says a lot about those of us who are trying to do this work that we remember that right, and that just because someone or something is new doesn't mean it isn't valuable. Cultural, cultural relevance was at one point a new idea. Diversity, equity, and inclusion was at one point a new idea. We used to use the language of tolerance, and that was a new idea, right? So we were all new ones, um, but we're all just trying to not not be new forever. So I want to uh, spend a couple of minutes talking about your methods. You mentioned before that in your literature review, you were finding, well, first of all, you weren't finding very much because there wasn't much to find. And even among what you did find, a lot of it was scholarly, right? People coming up with their best ideas. And the few, maybe one or two empirical research articles were quantitative in nature, whereas your study is considerably more qualitative. So could you tell us a little bit more about your study's methods? And you know, if you faced any sort of setbacks or challenges, uh, what did you do to accommodate something? Some of those some of those more challenging circumstances sure um i think for me it really began taking a philosophies of the inquiry course as part of my phd program where we looked at paradigms of research right ways that we view the world i had never really taken a deep dive into that literature and understanding it was a phenomenal class for me in really understanding what post-positivist paradigms are right critical theorists interpretivists so i really fell into that critical theorist paradigm and a lot that I had been reading aligned with it. And so when I was really thinking about the question that I wanted to ask and it fitting within that paradigm, co-constructing knowledge with participants, right? I'm not the one who holds all the truth, Mm -hmm. really trying to understand this experience and also thinking about the influence society has on the way that we experience leadership learning, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, that really aligned and it led me to ask the question in a qualitative manner. And so I was really interested in hearing participants' stories. My my study is kind of like a classic qualitative. Part of what I struggled with, and I had a wonderful person in my committee, um, Jenny Wolgamuth, who really helped me navigate through that is do I have to label this as phenomenology Mm -hmm. or or you, you have classic labels for qualitative study but this was like just a traditional approach of individual interviews and focus group Mm -hmm. so even just identifying that because of the question that i was asking to explore what these meaningful experiences were to students and they define what meaningful is it just really made sense to interview them individually at first and then because leadership development is a collective development i also interviewed them in small focus groups so i had nine participants total 
And we had two focus groups, one of five participants and one with four in it. And these were students who kind of knew each other beforehand, right? Like these, because they were a part of the same program that you've been managing, yes. it wasn't like they were building relationships from scratch in your study environment. They were people who, the moment they walked in the door, could maybe find one or two people whose names they knew, whose story they were familiar with, who had they had some shared experiences with. Yeah, I would actually say they they, pro- they all really knew each other. They all knew each other's names for sure, but... Um, yeah, they had they had already an in-depth relationship built throughout the year that they had been in the program together, starting with um, the freshman retreat, which was pretty much a pre-orientation retreat. Mm-hmm. And they referred to that a lot during my study. And that's why I'm bringing mm-hmm. it up is for them that two days together was really foundational and set the tone for the remainder of the program. Yeah. So my relationship with them also, I think, really impacted it because we had already this rapport build when we were engaging in conversation, we could go in depth mm-hmm. into why, like Zay, this is a pseudonym. So why Zay paints his nails black mm-hmm. and he chooses to express his gender in that way. Like I, I felt comfortable enough being able to ask him that question. And he responded to it in a way that it, it, it dove so much deeper into his identity, mm-hmm. his gender identity, his sexual identity, right? Which I think sexual orientation, sorry. I think that that deep conversation wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had this rapport and trust mm-hmm. built from the program mm-hmm. in our yeah. relationship. Yeah, I was just about to ask, you know, being that familiar with your subjects, does that make it easier for you as a researcher because you do have the background to pull from? Does it make it more complicated in some ways because your participants also know you? And so they may be thinking, well, I, I should give the answer I'm expected to give as opposed to the one that might be truthful. It sounds a little bit like because of the rapport that you were able to establish with these students, there was never a concern of whether or not they were giving you socially favorable answers because they knew you well enough that the tr- there was no value in hiding the truth from you. Yeah, I, I would hope so, right? <laughs> yeah, we would hope so. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So one more question for you before we take a short break. In your findings area of your dissertation, you really have this really lovely model where you talk about um, some of these values. I think there are like four values and these six environmental factors. So I strongly encourage anyone who's interested in culturally relevant leadership learning work to check this document out. And I'm sure you will continue to publish from it in other areas. But once people get their hands on some of what you've been writing, how do you think or how do you envision leadership educators using what you found in your study? Yeah, I really hope that this, the model that I developed, so it's a model for fostering culturally relevant leadership development is a practical tool for educators to think of how they can shape the learning environment, both co-curricular or curricular, to really empower students, especially those of non-dominant identities, to build leadership, identity, capacity, and efficacy. So in the center of the model, is identity capacity and efficacy, mm-hmm. both um, how students develop that as an individual and then collectively through the leadership process. And then thinking about as an educator, having these contextual considerations mm-hmm. of the environment that we're in. So this is directly pulled from um, Hurtado's work and Millam et al. And it informs a culturally relevant leadership learning model. So they are domains for us to consider. So organizational and structural dimension of which where leadership occurs, the psychological or psychosocial dimension, behavioral dimension, the historical legacy of inclusion and exclusion, and the compositional diversity of our institution, of the department in which we work, if we're teaching in a co-curricular space or if we're within you know, student affairs, but considering what voices are heard, what ideas and thoughts are they coming from 
white heteronormative values, able-bodied values, right? So just thinking about all those dominant identities, how are they reflected in what we're providing students with? Are textbooks or activities, what are they informed by? Examples of, of leaders and leadership. So just summarizing overall, but even the psychosocial and psychological, like if I'm a, if I'm a woman and I cry as a leader, is that mm-hmm. acceptable in this environment, right? Or if I'm a man and I cry mm-hmm. as a leader, is that mm-hmm. acceptable, right? So just thinking about um, the different identities that we have and how that, those conceptual co- considerations, which we could spend hours on talking about this in depth. And then the fundamental values is what really came up through my research that students talked about. So if you think about a learning experience as an educator, how are you creating the space where camaraderie is occurring so students have the space to have fun, mm-hmm. to build that sense of belonging, to connect with others? I think about when I facilitate an activity, giving them a little bit of room to have some chatting in between, mm-hmm. like just to get to know each other mm-hmm. a little bit more in depth. Or if we have a bunch of leadership development activities jam-packed, is there enough breathing room? for students to bond in that in-between. And, and then it leads into reflection, which is such an important core component of leadership learning experiences. Also approaching the work from a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset. This is based on Carol Dweck's work. So thinking about how am I teaching students that failure is a part of leadership learning, that it's okay to make mistakes, that forgiveness is an important part of it, and then how to navigate through that, right? Because they, there could be a statement that's really dark and toxic and not okay. Mm. But how do we as a, a community work together, right? Am I having a one-on-one conversation with that student outside of class and checking in on them? Then how am I addressing that as a whole? This this growth mindset of the student is in their own learning journey while still addressing that that issue is problematic. Mm-hmm. It's it's so difficult. I don't know if I fully have the answer for that. And then how um, to create a brave space. So mm-hmm. this is Arrow and Clemens's work in, in 2013. If we really think about um, is, is a space truly safe? Mm-hmm. How do we have difficult dialogue and engage in difficult dialogue with courage? We all define respect differently. What does that mean? And so students talked a lot about being in, in this brave space where it allowed for vulnerability to happen. Mm-hmm. And that brave space really gave them the opportunity to bond with one another. Mm-hmm. And then the experience attributes. So then when you were thinking about specific specific experiences that we build as educators, um, how are we building experiences that empower individuals? This was the theme that popped up the most for my participants. All of them talked about the importance of being in a space that builds their cultural capital, their social capital, and how to navigate the university. Many of them were first-gen students too. So Mm-hmm. but also human capital. How do we create experiences that empower different ways of leading, different ways of being that are not your prototypical dominant way of, of leading? How do we promote enacting change? Mm-hmm. Providing students with the opportunity to practice actually enacting that change. Is there a project that they can do together? Could there be an activity in class, even even a challenge course? A lot of them brought up going to the university challenge course and that be a way that they're like enacting change in that moment. So Mm -hmm. there could be different ways we create experiences that collectively connect students to one another, that they're able to work with others that are different than them and acknowledge and appreciate differences in each other. And that differences are important for leadership to happen. So a lot of them brought up Finder because and MBTI, 
both those type of inventories, but not only the self, like under, understanding that I have different strengths than, than V does, but also how do I, how do I engage in leadership with people that can balance me out or bring certain strengths that I don't have mm-hmm. to the table. And then another experience attribute is embracing complexity is a really big one because our students are so, they, they live in a black and white world, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and and many don't, many embrace complexity from the beginning, but also thinking about, can I be this and that? Can I be pro-Black Lives Matter, right? And Black Lives Matter is at the heart, but can I also not want to defund the police, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to mm-hmm. think of yep. political issues sometimes that our students may fall in the middle somewhere, or mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're learning to navigate that complexity and understanding that that's okay to to tease out different ways of your political orientation and where that'll fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then celebrating counter narratives is really based on Mahoney's work here of bringing different voices into the leadership learning space that are not those dominant narratives that we always hear. And this was very empowering to, to, our, to the students in the study of non-dominant identities to have other voices and other ways of leading. That's a really wonderful and short recap of an incredibly much longer finding section in your dissertation. So I appreciate you providing that to us. Uh, Let's take a short break and we'll be right back with more with Dr. Anamaya. We are back with Dr. Anamaya. Uh, unlike many of our other episodes where we ask our guests to respond to a topic taken from recent headlines, uh, we're going to instead stay on the topic of your dissertation study. Anna, how does that sound to you? Sounds great. Great. Well, one of the things every doctoral student has to do prior to committing to a study is choose the topic of that study. You've already given us a little bit of sense of how your professional experiences and maybe some of your classroom experiences in the doctoral program helped formulate your ideas around your dissertation topic, but can you describe for us some of the other experiences that maybe led you down this particular path? Yeah, I I shared that going to conferences and attending conferences was a, a big part for me and also immersing myself in in literature and multicultural education. I took a course too on a multicultural history of America, which was so different. So all of the texts there provided me with an understanding of history from a different lens um, with different authors than your traditional like history books that you would see, you know, in a high school or college. So it, it really took that non-dominant look at our history. So that really led me to think about how we teach leadership and is it, coming from the same kind of lens. When John Dugan's book came out in 2017, that was really foundational for me and how I approach leadership education, kind of taking those critical perspectives and this idea of not only deconstructing 
from a power and privilege lens, Mm -hmm. leadership theories, but the reconstruction point Mm -hmm. I found really fascinating of now, what can I take from this with a critical eye and and use it in a way that is more inclusive Mm -hmm. or more thoughtful when I'm teaching it. And I actually, the capstone in our leadership studies minor, my juniors will take that course that are in the program. Mm -hmm. And so I've really seen a huge development in the way that they view leadership from taking that course. So I think it's even a concept that undergrads can really understand. That also really informed my curiosity on, okay, I'm not taking this such a deep dive with my freshman students in the program, but what are they learning? Are they learning some of these elements that are really important so they can embrace culturally relevant leadership or have a culturally relevant leadership lens to, Mm -hmm. even as an undergrad, to the way they interact with each other. And do they feel, Latson Billings talks about this in the culturally relevant literature, thinking about students as assets, right? Every person comes into the learning experience and they have so much to give. And we assume that if they're not from that dominant, those dominant identities, they're not bringing any new knowledge or like their, their stories don't add anything, right? And those of us that are culturally relevant educators are like, absolutely not. They add so much to the experience. So I was really curious about, do students feel empowered if they are in a program that is mindful of their experience and really sees every person in there as a leader, a person that can develop as a leader further and engage in leadership for positive social change? So those are some elements that also led to my topic. Working full-time has been great too, as hard as it has been to balance everything I've really had to be determined about deadlines and fit everything in with our, the way the semester flows. Mm-hmm. And so even interviewing my students, finding time in the summer where they would be available on Zoom to be interviewed for this experience. But the part about working full time has kept me really up to date too on what's mm-hmm. happening at a practical level. And so for me, it was really important for my topic to be this like research to practice mm-hmm. approach as well, even though this is a PhD program for me, that was still really um, important part of the journey is, okay, now I have, how can I apply this mm-hmm. to make the leadership learning experience more culturally relevant? Yeah, it definitely sounds like you're talking about a research to practice to research yeah. <laughs> cycle, right? Because there's, there's the stuff that we think we know, and then you try it with a group of students and some of it works and some of it doesn't, but we don't know why. And so we then try to research those mechanisms to figure out, okay, well, what's, what's the explanation behind what I'm seeing, which then informs practice, which then can inform more research. But when it keeps, you know, we can sort of iteratively go back and forth between these two things. And while it can be very challenging to be a full-time employee and a doctoral student at the same time. It sounds like you found some real benefit in being able to routinely reality test some of the ideas you were being fed in a classroom <laughs> uh, in, in real time, right? Is that is that an accurate thing to say? It is. Yeah, it is. And, and it also was very different from maybe someone who is in a higher ed program that is directly studying this. I was kind of always the odd one out uh, looking at theories and my classes from a higher ed instead of a K through 12 lens. So I think it's also very possible for you to develop your own topic and your own passion, even if it's not directly aligned to the program. And so I had very supportive faculty that were open to that as well. And VU being on my committee, right, was huge because you provided the in-depth look that I needed on this research and really helped me develop it further than maybe a faculty member in my program that was more educational psych 
oriented. So it allowed for more of that interdisciplinary lens to bleed through my process. And also having a qualitative methodologist was huge mm-hmm. in supporting me throughout that. And as you know, so first of all, thank you for the for the kind words. But as someone who was on your committee, I saw your manuscript quite a few times before the final submission in your final defense. And in that process, one of the things that stood out to me was the intellectual labor you committed, not just in the writing, not just in the thinking, but the making sense of your data and taking great care to visualize it for your readers, knowing that the people who read your work or see you presented at a conference conference, they're never going to know the students that you know. They're never going to see, you know, your analysis reports. They're never going to see your coding, you know, schemes. They're never going to see all that documentation. So can you talk to us a little bit more about the sense making you did around your data and how you went about trying to frame it so that a you know non-specialists audience could understand it? Gosh, yeah, that was such a difficult process. I think engaging in qualitative work and um someone who like, I don't want to eliminate anything from a student's story. I want to keep it as accurate to their voice as possible. So when I was in the data and collecting the data, so I had all of these interviews to code and then the focus groups to code and then both inductive coding and deductive coding, right? So the coding based on the knowledge I already have and then just based on like this in vivo, the the participants experience. So I had all of this coming together Everything was important. I couldn't simplify it. And part of this value, right, as you can see, it came up in the model because it's important to the students too, this idea of embracing complexity. Mm -hmm. This work is complex. And I think that's what's so difficult is we try to simplify it sometimes. And it does live in this complex world. And I tried to do that in in this experience as well, Mm -hmm. right? How can I um, produce something that allows practitioners to really apply it into their work or allows us to think about our work in a way that benefits students. So for me, uh, spending the time really trying to put statements into identity, capacity, and efficacy categories, because that's what I was studying. Mm -hmm. Well, for the students, those three concepts, they were blurred. Mm -hmm. They may have developed their leadership identity, right? So they, they, they start identifying as a leader or maybe their leadership differentiated, realizing if we think about the LID model, the mm-hmm. leadership identity um, development model, they develop in different ways. And then that is coupled with their confidence in their ability to lead, mm-hmm. right? Their efficacy, mm-hmm. which then they're also building the capacity, the knowledge, skills and abilities. It's all intertwined for them. So it was just very difficult to kind of tease that out from what participants were sharing. So what I did was a zoom out. Mm-hmm. And I have a wonderful friend who actually just uh, completed her PhD in counseling. I called Lily up and I was like, Lily, I don't know what to do. And she was like, you love to paint. You love to draw. Why don't you do that? And I have a little bit of background in graphic design. I nearly, you know, another lifetime ago, <laughs> I nearly became a graphic designer. Mm-hmm. So I I zoomed out by, okay, if if I am the instrument, if in qualitative methodology, the researcher is the instrument as mm-hmm. well as you know, the participants who are co-researchers, depending on how you, you know, you're approaching the study. But I I took that Zoom out and then I was like, wow, what what are important messages that I'm gathering here? Mm-hmm. And and I, I turned up with 14 different elements. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading through the data, listening to my students' interviews again and processing that. And so I, I drew it out as a model and 
I think I had over 15 versions. V. You, you yeah. definitely saw quite a few of them, but sure. it was wonderful to then consult with experts and actually a couple of my student workers here mm-hmm. that are uh, further along in the program. I consulted with them too. Like, what do you think? What about this? And then participants as well, showing them the model and tweaking it a little bit. I had two of the participants who happened to pop into my office after summer, you know, they had come mm-hmm. back and I was like, what do you think about it? And they also helped. So I think getting that feedback from different individuals, experts, and the experts, the students themselves can be so important in, in processing that data. So that's part, part of how I made sense of it. Sure. Sure. And I appreciate you in, in the early part of your comments just now talking about that balance between comprehensiveness and being concise, right? Like yeah. when everything is important, how do you write a document that's not a thousand pages long, right? Because you want to include every single thing every single person said because you see the value in it. But that stepping back and that reframing of accepting every story is important and trying to nonetheless find the common elements, the common themes, what is not necessarily the loudest voice, but the thing that I'm hearing over and over again, that right may be the thing that gets elevated as opposed to every single story a student tells, which might not necessarily be useful in something like a dissertation, but could find a home somewhere else later on, right? Like in another conversation and another publication and a conference presentation or what I think you've already talked about, which is informing the practice, right? Like the stories of other people's stories that live in you have an impact on how you do your work. And even if it doesn't ever find its way into something that gets published in the world, it will show up in how you how you treat other people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I also appreciate you telling us about the consult the consultation that you asked for and in some cases you got unprovoked right sometimes you ask somebody specifically can you look at this tell me what it says to you in other instances somebody came into your office and said so hey what do you, what do you work what you got there right yeah. and and if it's if it was somebody who was already in the study they would have a sense of what you were trying to do because they know at least how they contributed i think there is maybe this misconception that many of us hide ourselves in some remote location with a laptop for three months. And then at the end of that, we birth a 200 page dissertation and it totally doesn't work that way, right? It really does take a village. It takes a village of scholars. It takes a village of mentors. It takes our personal connections when we're studying students. Sometimes it takes those students. And sometimes it's just like random things that happen in life that will all of a sudden cause you to see something differently or hear a story differently. And that is the clarity moment that allows us to write, that allows us to speak, that allows us to articulate what we're finding in such different ways. But, you know, that that notion of the the lone wolf genius in, in doctoral study, it's just, it's not a real thing. Yeah. And there, I think there's so much value when you add other voices in the mix mm-hmm. to fully mm-hmm. understand the phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one last question before we wrap up for today, and this this question does have two parts. So I'm some cheating here. It really is two last questions. Based on that reflection that we were just having together, what advice do you have for people who are either uh, maybe already in a doctoral program and struggling with their topic or someone who might be considering pursuing a doctoral degree but are on the fence about applying to one? Yeah. So if you're already in a doctoral program too, one of the advice one of the pieces of advice that I was given that really helped was using each assignment in every class to further that dissertation topic. If you have a literature review, if you can frame it around 
something that you're really curious about, you want to do a deep dive. I did quite a few. So I did quite a few on uh, social generativity and resilience as well mm-hmm. when I was exploring this topic further. And I, I was lucky enough that I was able to use my qualifying exams to write my literature review chapter. So if you can take advantage of those opportunities, because I would say the literature review chapter for me was the hardest to write and already to have that done before my proposal was awesome because I could just add more to it where my committee suggested that I explore their areas further. It also made me feel more of an expert than I was before. Mm -hmm. So that literature review, the extra reading was really, really important. And also seeing if you can find pieces where researchers write about what the field needs, Mm -hmm. what the field is missing, right? Those Mm -hmm discussion sections in a study are great places to start too. Is someone suggesting, okay, this study could be taken further by you exploring certain things. I started taking notes on those. So I had quite a few articles I had saved that, wow, I want to explore this a little further. I wonder where that's, you know, going to go or, Mm -hmm. and for me being really passionate about my topic was huge. It was a Mm -hmm. huge driver. The other piece of advice that really helped is, the dissertation is just the start. <laughs> so I that sounds I, terrifying. <laughs> be everything and it'd be the best thing I've ever published. And mm-hmm. it would put me on a map and now I'm no, right? Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who doesn't want that? Right. But it can be very overwhelming. There were times where I felt like I was freezing because I didn't know mm-hmm. what, where could I focus on that would give me that niche. And so I remember I, I was looking at the MSL data to publish a, an article on resilience. And then someone came out using the data mm-hmm, with a mm-hmm. piece. And I'm like, my idea is ruined. Mm-hmm. Like, I won't be known as the resilience leadership person. Right. Uh-huh. And so um, I do think that 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 took me to this route, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I could have also published something looking at the data differently. That's right. And um, keep on building that and build the relationship with the people who published that article mm-hmm. and create our own community of scholars. Right. Yeah. So that, that would be something I would suggest to with struggling with your topic. Mm-hmm. And then if you're on the fence about a doctoral degree and thinking about applying, gosh, there's so much to consider here. I'm sure V, you have quite a bit of advice in both of these topics as well. I think for me, I took quite a few years off mm-hmm. and financially I decided to work full time because it, mm-hmm. it was the best mix than, than going full time. There are moments that i I feel like I've missed some opportunities about being able to fully dive into a topic about having a research assistantship where I really worked closely with a faculty member and produced a lot of work. But then I think about how enriching it's been to have this experience working with students. Funding is a big part of it, right? So if you have an institution that has tuition remission, I did not. So that was also a very difficult decision to make. But think taking that first step, maybe trying to take a class. I actually started a PhD in sociology Mm -hmm. at University of Central Florida seven years ago, maybe. And it wasn't the program for me. Mm -hmm. I actually loved the classes, but there were elements about the program that didn't fit within my schedule. And I was not at the place where I could balance well. Mm -hmm. And it was very detrimental to my health. So Mm -hmm. I decided to pause and then I started over later. So Mm -hmm. that's also something if you're considering maybe taking a summer course and seeing how that feels and balancing that, especially if you have a family or other elements in your life that are really important and a priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's great advice all around. Yeah, I do. People routinely ask me about the graduate school experience. And while I do have advice, I always wonder if it's any good. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I would say for anyone uh, who's in a doctoral program now and struggling with their topic, one of the things that helped me the most was also one of the most uncomfortable things I did, which was to talk about my ideas publicly with strangers, right? So sometimes that was an ILA conference, sometimes that was in the elevator going to or from a meeting, I think nothing forced me to develop clarity around what I was thinking than have, having to say it in public. It is scary because on the one hand, if my ideas weren't fully formed, then I didn't want to misrepresent myself. And on the other hand, the moment I said, well, I care about something or I want to study this, I immediately opened up myself to critique, right? And I, and I think we work in a community of scholars where critique comes from a loving place, but some some people are just critical to be critical, right? Like some people just like poking holes in ideas and it doesn't mean that the ideas are bad or wrong. It's just what they're good at, right? Like their wheelhouse is finding those those areas. And it isn't always comfortable hearing that my ideas had holes in them, but knowing where those uh, underdeveloped areas were meant that I could focus in on them, right? It attuned my radar differently than if I was just sitting in a room by myself telling myself how great my own topic was because I picked it as opposed to trying to really understand something deeply. So the one of the pieces of advice I would give to people who are in programs struggling with their topic is to talk about it publicly and to bravely open themselves up to that criticism, not because they're bad scholars, not because I'm trying to feed anybody's imposter syndrome, but because some people, including me, might be surprised at how well we can defend our own ideas when we have spent so much time with them. And that validation is also is also very helpful. For people who are considering a doctoral degree or any, you know, advanced degree, uh, but are on the fence about applying, I, I would retweet your advice of take a class, audit a course, try it before you buy it, right? Like, and, and any number of things could be uh, misaligned. It could be the wrong time in your life. It could be the wrong specific course. If that instructor that you happen to be with doesn't, you know, jive with your way of learning, it doesn't mean that you are not fit for the program. We all go through experiences where a particular course, a particular semester, a particular teacher is not our favorite. And we kind of endure, right? We learn a little bit about ourselves and it doesn't mean that we've made a bad decision. It just means that it's hard work, right? Like it's always going to be hard work. But being truthful with ourselves about what our capacities are, what our limitations are, how much strain we're really we're willing to endure, how much stress our relationships can take, and in some cases, how much stress our bank accounts can take, like all of that, I think is really helpful advice. Uh, knowing that anybody who wants to pursue this type of education should, in a perfect world, have the opportunity to do it. Not all of us live lives where we're allowed, right? Like many of us have systemic barriers to this educational experience. And if that happens to be you who's listening, know that it's not that you are not good enough. It's simply that your circumstances may not allow you to right now and that your time may come. <laughs> and even if it isn't right now, you may still need to be ready for, for what happens next. So as we wrap up our time together today, I want to thank Anna for the conversation. Thanks, V. I appreciate being here and digging deep <laughs> on the dissertation process. No, that's that's phenomenal. And I encourage all of the all of you out there to keep an eye out for her continued work. It will be in the markets soon. And so hopefully you won't be <laughs> able to avoid it. And as a reminder, you will hear more from me and Dr. Maya this season of the NASPA SLPKC podcast. That's all for today. We'll catch you next time. The NASPA SLPKC podcast is a production of the Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education's Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. 
As the leading voice of student affairs, NASPA drives innovation and evidence-based, student-centered practice throughout higher education, nationally and globally. The mission of the SLPKC is to serve as a resource for higher education professionals who have an interest in leadership training, education, and development. The podcast is produced by Derek Pacheco and hosted by Brittany Devies, Anna Maya, and me, Vichinu. The music featured on our episodes comes from pixabay.com. Find us on Twitter at NASPA Tweets, send email to slpchairs at gmail.com, and find links to our references from this episode in the show notes. Thank you, as always, for listening.